she was just a 14 year old girl and you know it was so tragic to see such a young girl going through this and india it's uh, it's almost a decade or more now that we have uh, you know our labor force participation uh, of women uh, is declining And welcome to the Global Inquirer, where we take a look at intriguing case studies to explain how global trends are impacting real lives. I'm your host, Nico Marsic, and today I'm joined by Katya Sanko, a researcher at the Global Inquirer and a foreign affairs and Slavic studies major. Katya, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Nico. It's good to be back in the studio. So today our case study is going to look at a Pakistani telemedicine company called Sehat Kahani, which pairs female stay-at-home doctors in Pakistan with patients in low-income and remote areas to offer medical advice and medical suggestions. And so with this episode, Katya and I kind of want to discuss why there's such a lower female workforce participation rate in a lot of these developing countries. And specifically today, we're going to take a look at South Asia and India and Pakistan, where some of the female workforce participation rates are incredibly low compared to the U.S. So this is such a huge issue worldwide. And so this is why we're kind of narrowing it down to South Asia. Because if you Google females are more educated but less employed, you'll get results from all over the world. Like you'll get results uh, and reports from Ireland, from India. So that's why we're pretty much going to focus mainly on Pakistan and India. I, I just think it's a it's a very relevant topic, even in the United States, because the other day I was talking to my parents and I was just sitting there and I was like, oh, my gosh, guys, I don't think I'm going to get a job when I grow up. <laughs> and it's ironic because I'm studying at the, at the University of Virginia and I'm working really hard on my studies and it feels like I'm going to graduate and I should get a good job. But at the same time, there are always these factors that inhibit people from entering the professional job market. And so I feel kind of silly for having this conversation in the first place mm-hmm. because especially after doing this research and looking into Pakistan and, and looking into India and seeing that the female labor force participation rates are around 0.29 for for both Pakistan, for India, for Saudi Arabia. Um, that, and to contextualize that, that means like for one man working, it's like 0.29 of a woman working in the, in the market too. It, it's, it's a little bit clunky <laughs> of right, an expl- yeah. explanation, but you know what sure, I mean, Sure, yeah, right? like if 100 men work are working, then About only 29. 29 women working are, are working. Exactly. And compared to the United States, which is about 0.87, um, I I think that really puts things into perspective for me, mm-hmm. <laughs> especially going forward in the in the job market, how uh, how lucky it is that we have the type of culture here that embraces uh, female professional participation. Right, and what was especially shocking when we were doing research was the fact that in countries like India female workforce participation is actually declining. You know, you think as India is growing, their economy is getting a lot better, but right. this workforce participation is is re- decreasing, you know. Uh, in the 1990s, it was somewhere at like 0.4 to 1, and now you're looking at somewhere like 0.356. So th- that's pretty shocking when you, when you really look into it. It is pretty shocking, yeah. And so with this episode, we want to discuss some of the factors that are contributing to this. And in the end, jump to the case study where we talk about solutions that, you know, may offer women potential careers in entrepreneurship or potential pathways to become employed, given the certain cultural and institutional constraints that exist. And one of the main factors, uh, which Professor Sri, a professor of global studies 
who works on issues of gender studies in developing countries, specifically in India, discusses in detail in this clip here. So a lot of my experience comes from India. It's almost a decade or more now that we have, uh, you know, our labor force participation uh, of women uh, is declining. And so that's the kind of very, you know, uh, important trend. And um, there are many factors, uh, you know, uh, related to that and how to look at it. Uh, if you look at a country like India or many countries in South Asia, we were broadly agricultural societies, at least for, you know, a good majority of people. So that shift is important that women are now um, forced to move out of agriculture sector and then actually join the manufacturing industry or other service industries. And that's happening a lot, along with the which directly also mean that women migrating from rural areas to urban areas, which is, a, again, a broad trend uh, in the post-globalization period. So the cities are expanding. So cities become bigger, bigger and, and, and otherwise what we think of as a rural area is changing drastically. So all of this is, you know, making big changes. Mm-hmm. And when you're speaking to mass urbanization and in India, or broadly speaking, in developing countries, how does that affect women in the workforce there? Like, what kind of jobs do women try to get in, um, like, urban areas, and what what jobs are they sort of restricted from getting in urban areas? So one change is that in the 70s or uh, 60s, uh, migration meant that mostly men used to migrate alone, looking for work from the rural areas to urban areas. But uh, from 90s onwards, you will say the entire family migrates. And then what's interesting is that um, so middle-class women in the urban areas join the workforce. Um, more of them join the workforce means that they need someone else to replace their household activities, you know, or basically taking care of the family. So you ha- you will see then unskilled or poor or illiterate women moving from rural areas become domestic workers, you know, what's which a big expanding um, employment e- sector for women uh, from rural areas and poor women um, is the job of domestic worker, which we call in South Asian context a maid. Having a maid is a very, um, it's a, you know, a part of every day, every family, every household now. Like they have a maid if they want their wives to be able to go out and earn and do paid work. So one uh, certainly is that big uh, domestic work market. So what Professor Sri is saying is that after a large wave of urbanization in the 1990s, a lot of women and their families started moving from rural areas to the cities, whereas before they had been working, you know, on the farm or in the village, moving into the city, moving into slums, they weren't able to find jobs that had that were that could meet skills like farming or working at home. This serves as one institutional factor that has led to this declining female workforce participation in India. Right. And I, and something that I found really interesting from her soundbite was when she was explaining the domestic workers and the fact that a lot of females are participating in domestic work in India because in order to allow the female of the household to go and find a better paying job. Uh, to me, this was funny because recently I read a statistic that uh, more women are employed in uh, in 
in the public sector across the board in, in a number of different countries because the public sector usually provides more accommodations to women. So they provide childcare, they provide better maternity leave, where in a lot of countries, including the United States, these things aren't required by law to be included in the private sector. Right, yeah. And I mean, I think it's in the best interest of the private sector to provide these things like maternity leave and, and childcare. But as Professor Sri points out, you know, even in the public sector, some women face marginalization with respect to how they're treated and how they're paid. Yeah. Um, so I have worked on uh, specifically on what we call the social welfare policies and in India and, and its relationship with women workers. So my book uh, came out uh, from OUP, Oxford University Press, uh, last year in 2017. Um, it's called State Without Honor. It specifically looks at um, you know the lessons we learned from what kind of um, work women do, in specifically in uh, social welfare policy schemes in India. Um, and 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 what is the role of the state? Um, in this case, Indian state in sort of devaluation of women's work. So we have women workers, majority women workers working in these schemes. And so I've used the case of um, what we call honorary workers. And so that's why the name state without honor. Uh, so it looks at, um, you know, the state uses the term um, like the designation of the work as honorary workers and which takes away their rights as workers. So they become doing an honorary work, which doesn't give them access to what we call, um, you know, here what you call leaving wage or minimum wage. They don't have the rights for that. But it's kind of interpreted in such a way that these are, this is a kind of work which women can or should probably be doing in uh, almost as a unpaid work, though it actually directly is employed a scheme by the state and um, so they are paid workers so that transition you know the the the, the use of women's work um, which falls between sort of formal and informal sector and it kind of uh, then uh, uses those women's labor which are mostly from poor communities for their own welfare so you it it, it some ways ends like women are uh, taking care of their own communities yeah, so we discussed two of the many problems that exist that contribute to this lower female workforce participation. And uh, in our interview, Professor Sri and I talked a little bit about microfinance institutions, which tried to solve some of these problems and tried to encourage women in entrepreneurship and encourage women to start small businesses. But even within this field of microfinance, which gives loans to women in you know like low-income or remote communities to start businesses, the debate is very nuanced, and there are still some problems that still constrain women with female workforce participation. I am sure you know the story of Bangladesh and the story of my Grameen Bank, and uh, that's the story of uh, also many rural areas in many countries in South Asia, including India. So, um, you know, targeting local women um, and kind of, in, you know, helping them to organize themselves and group a, a groups like collectives um, of women and then uh, banking, local banking, um, or uh, to be able to give them loans. And mainly considering the fact that women, uh, again, are uh, more, um, you know, good in repaying their loans and, um, 
even actively engaging with other women at the local level and collect money. So that level of banging has been sort of um, was successful, I would say, uh, maybe a decade or two de- decades now or more. I mean, from it started mainly from 70s onwards in Bangladesh and then spread to, um, in the case of Grameen Bank, to other countries too. And then... But I think uh, the past uh, one decade, um, that has come up with many, there are many critiques of it. And so I would say I will be cautious of um, kind of blindly supporting the idea of microfinance anymore. And I have reasons for it. There are mainly, I would say, two reasons. One is that um, if you see that um, what's been happening in uh, women who are involved in this kind of projects or microfinance or participating in small banks in, 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 in these countries, um, many of them have uh, failed sometimes to uh, repay either because of a crisis at home or workplace. And then there's so much pressure on them that they tend to, and there are many, there have been many incidences of women committing suicide because of not being able to repay and then facing the consequences of it. And sometimes women even do this without sharing with their, it with the entire family. And, um, and, and otherwise too, men don't take the responsibility because then women have been doing this together. And um, this, the other important issue for me, I would say that why do people like say families in rural areas take loans? And most of this time, most of the time, these loans are addressing social, um, you know, for, for uh, concerns like say dowry, like paying dowry is a big issue in countries like India or some other parts of South Asia too. So if you are taking a loan uh, mainly to get your daughter married, I wouldn't really consider that as a empowerment, uh, uh, you know. I mean, uh, so there's a question of understanding local patriarchies and kind of rethinking about it. So I would say microfinance, yes, uh, you take a loan for your daughter's education, that'll be good. But that rarely happens. So I would be very choosy about uh, where that loan money is used and how that's used and who has control over it. So those issues also have to be you know, looked into. So we've addressed a lot of institutional factors in um, female labor force participation rate in South Asia. But I think one of the biggest factors that um, Professor Sri just addressed was the institution of marriage and the conception of marriage in South Asia. It's just it's a funny and a sad reality that women are taking out these loans to pay their dowries. Um, I also read a statistic and this is about Pakistan and not India. So this is going to cover the next case study that we're going to jump into. But apparently 50 to 70 percent of loans that women are pulling out from these microfinance organizations actually go straight to their husbands. These microfinance organizations are built for female entrepreneurs so that they can take out money and they can build their own business from the ground up. But it's just sad because they end up exploiting the system and the, the men end up with the money anyway, <laughs> reinforcing these patriarchal uh, local structures that Professor Street was talking about. Right, and this really leads us into the case study, which was fascinating. And I'll let Dr. Ifat Zakar, one of the co-founders of Sehat Khani, take it from here, because the work that she's doing in Pakistan is fascinating. And let's just jump right into it. 
So Sehat Kahani essentially um, in Urdu uh, means the story of health. And what Sehat Kahani does is that um, the, according to the Pakistani social norms, what happens every year is that there's a large number of women who graduate as physicians. So in Pakistan, there's a huge culture and acceptability that women should only um, opt two career options, either teaching or going into medicine. So, you know, being a doctor is considered very prestigious here in um, Pakistan. And most of the people um, like to make their daughters, you know, into doctors once they grow up. Mm-hmm. And the perspectives and the reason behind that is not medical practice, but actually the prospect that they'll get better marriage proposals. <laughs> I, I think it's really interesting. Or I, I think it's honestly funny and it's sad how she was explaining that women become doctors and they, they go through all of that intense training and education just to be more quote unquote marketable uh, in the, in the marriage market, if that makes any sense. Right. Like it's a, like it's a commoditized thing. You right. Know? Right. It's, it's the, it's, it's exactly what it is. It's the commodification of women pretty much. It, it makes a woman more valuable and it makes a man more likely to invest, um, and it's it's a sad reality, um, and and also playing in with this marketability is what we talked about earlier with with the microfinances with the loans used as dowries, um, and so it's almost like the humanity is stripped away from women in lieu of market value. For sure. Well, let's listen to a little bit more for what Sehat Khan has to say about how they're providing solutions to this problem. So this is the irony that you know we have in Pakistan. Um, usually many doctors graduate, but because of this reason, once they get married and once they have the domestic responsibilities, they are unable to work. But then there's the other set of women doctors as well who are very ambitious and who want to work. But because of um, other social barriers, for example, in Pakistan, there's hardly any daycare facility for children. So once they get married and they have children, they tend to fall out of the workforce for almost six to eight years till their children grow up. So this is a major gap that actually occurs. Um, if you look at the numbers, Pakistan has almost 60,000 to 70,000 graduated female physicians. Yet, because of the um, reservations, only 23% of this number are actually registered as physicians. So you can imagine that that's a very small number for a country which has a population of almost two or three million people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because on the other hand, what happens is that because of the lack of the supply chain of doctors, we still have a large population who does not have access to basic quality health care. So the statistics say that 51% of the Pakistani population still lacks access to quality health care. And this is, I think, uh, the gray area where Sehat Khani started working. So we realized that uh, these are the two um, market gaps and market failures. And what we started to do was that we started to connect the two through three business verticals. So what we do is that we recruit these home-based female physicians and we connect them to healthcare um, populations in need through three various verticals. So the first vertical is about uh, creating e-health hubs It's all about creating accessibility. So we go into marginalized communities, rural areas um, where there's no female physician. And what we do is that um, we identify a two-room space 
So we don't build, believe in building this infrastructure. But what we do is that we identify existing infrastructure present there. It can be a clinic um, built by some other organization or a clinic currently being run by a nurse or a certified midwife. Then what we do is that we identify a respectable and reputable nurse or a midwife who's certified and trained from the community. <clears throat> and we bring her on board to become our partner. And we convert that clinic into a telemedicine center by upgrading it, by adding telemedicine tools, um, basic telemedicine and internet connectivity. We train the nurse for medical protocols, for pharmacy protocols, for the telemedicine software. And every clinic is provided with two female physicians. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the whole business model, uh, so the whole company is essentially running on a business model where all of the services are charged and it's supposed to become a sustainable business model. Mm -hmm. And so from sort of, a, I don't know, I think a lot of our listeners might not be too aware of what telemedicine is. Can you describe how a telemedicine conversation would look between the patient and the uh, doctor and the nurse? Okay. So essentially, it's something like the, the communication that you and me are having right now over Skype, perhaps. Mm -hmm. But that's not Skype, but that's more of a more specialized uh, software. And it enables not only the doctor to record the history of the patient, but there are a couple of digital tools also associated with it. For example, e-stethoscopes, e-dermoscopes, which strengthen the communication. Yeah. So let's imagine you are the online doctor <laughs> who's based in US and I'm a nurse and I might have a patient who comes to my place, which we can assume that it's going to be a clinic. And I, I as a nurse will interview the patient for the basic demographics, the age, the history and all of that. And I'll type it in the software and I'll press enter and you being the doctor can actually see that history. And then I'll move the laptop towards the patient and the patient can interact directly with you. You can then ask additional questions and um, add on to the history and then you will be prescribing. And uh, the prescription actually comes at my end, that is the nurse's end. And I just print it and give it to the patient so that, you know, the nurse doesn't really have to type the prescription. That's how it works. Yeah, that, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And so what are the responses from some of the employees, you know, coming from the patients or even the doctors that are that you employ? What have been some of the positive responses that you've been hearing? So, um, you know, when we started, it has been a very interesting journey. And, you know, um, telemedicine has been very new in Pakistan. I'm sure uh, telemedicine is still heard of in countries like U.S., U.K., Canada. But for Pakistan, it was very new. So three years back when we started, um, initially people had reservations. Patients were a bit apprehensive and they had the concerns that, oh, are they filming us or are they making our video or what? Because this you're talking about very low-income communities where even the literacy level is not to that mark. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, but then we started uh, doing one thing. What we started to do was we started educating the community for telemedicine even before launching. So what we used to do was, for example, go in a community, sit on the floor with a group of women, eight to ten women, and, you know, give them a demo of how telemedicine works. And that's how they started to become very comfortable with it. Then when, the, when we started recruiting doctors, most of these doctors we got from qualified institutes, for example, Aga Khan, Zayauddin, 
and some of them are even doctors who are based outside pakistan so that's when i think it really started to make a difference and the patients started to realize that this is some very sophisticated or elite service that they're actually having mm-hmm. so patients really started to just love it they were like oh wow you know i'm sitting in this community and i'm having access with a doctor who is essentially a graduate of one of the leading medical institutes of pakistan so that's how it started to change and so just uh, i'm curious to hear like what kind of numbers sehakani employs and how many patients you know each doctor sees a day or in total like what what are can you give some like quantitative information so um in the head office we have a team of around 11 people mm-hmm. um so we have people so i look after business development sara is the ceo and looks after the operations maka is also very active operationally then we have a research lead and we have two people in the preventive healthcare team so along with the clinics we also do one thing is that um, we promote health education and awareness in the communities because that's something we realized lacks a lot so we have two people in that and then we have extensive clinical team um, which includes a clinical lead then regional manager um the clinics are uh, present in three provinces right now and we have 14 clinics at the moment so we have seven clinics in karachi three in interior sin one in punjab and three in kpk so for all of these three provinces we have um three regional managers then at the level of the clinic there is one nurse there is one female uh, mobilizer and one male coordinator so if i look at the numbers broadly almost 11 to 12 people in the head office team and almost 33 people in the peripheral healthcare staff including the nurse the mobilizer and the coordinator and then um we have created a network of around 500 female physicians out of which the ones actively recruited in this clinic as well as in our preventive healthcare portfolio almost 45 doctors at the moment so we're wrapping up today on a pretty somber note with a story from Dr. Ifat Sakar about a 14-year-old girl that we both found pretty touching and I think it's important for you to hear it in order to contextualize this issue and to to fully understand the impact that Sahat Kahani is having in Pakistan and the true need for regional healthcare and female employment take a listen we realize that the issue of early childhood marriages is such a grave issue in Pakistan um there was a afghan pathan girl who came to one of our clinics and you know she she's all covered wearing that hijab you wouldn't even realize um and she was expecting she was in her third trimester and when she removed her veil she was just a 14 year old girl and you know it was so tragic to see such a young girl going through this and when we started talking to her she didn't know how to read or write this was her third baby so she had had two previous pregnancies and they both ended up in a bad miscarriage and i'm sure that happened because she was so young herself that and you know the kind of nutrition status i am assuming she had that we were really shocked that you know she, here there's a 14 year old girl who doesn't know how to read and write who has had two miscarriages earlier and she's again pregnant now not knowing what to do with her health not knowing what kind of diet she needs to have what are the other precautions she needs to take and this is the kind of community or society we live in so and these are the patients that is a norm in areas like this where healthcare is highly negligent so you know at sehat kahani we 
hope that we will actually be able to save and be the saviors of healthcare for at least these kinds of women. Well, I hope so too. Yeah, I think that's so incredibly sad that story, but fascinating that you guys are doing, you know, such great work and continuing to help out women like her. Trying to. And that'll do it for today's episode. I want to thank Katya for coming on and Professor Sri and Dr. Zakhar for doing this great research and uh, commentary on all the interviews. Um, if you want to learn more about Sehat Kahani, please check out their website. You can go ahead and check out Professor Sri's new book that just came out as well, uh, State Without Honor. And while you're at it, you can give us a rate and comment on iTunes. We really appreciate all the support. Tune in next week as we go to Central Asia to talk about the geopolitics and geostrategic importance of the region um, between Russia, China, and the U.S. We'll see you next time.